It's February 15th, and this is The Candid Frame. Hi, my name is Ivarian X. Perello, and I want to welcome you to the very first episode of The Candid Frame, a podcast of conversations with some of the world's best photographers. Now, when it comes to describing the show, it seems a lot easier to describe what it's not going to be. It's not a show that focuses on the latest photographic gear or Photoshop technique. There are several other podcasts and websites to choose from that already do an excellent job of this. Instead, what I'm hoping for is that the conversations you'll be hearing will give you an insight into the work of some of these photographers and, more importantly, be an inspiration to those who listen to the show and who have a deep love of photography. Another reason is, is purely a selfish one, as it's, as it's going to give me a perfect excuse to meet and talk with some of my favorite photographers, but I hope that my conversations with them will be of interest to you. This podcast is definitely going to be a work in progress, so expect a few growing pains as I try to negotiate all this technology. For starters, the first few conversations will be in-person interviews, so please excuse the, the background noise. But as I get a better sense of how to effectively use all this equipment, Skype, iChat, I hope that eventually I'll be able to not only improve the audio quality, but have the opportunity to interview photographers not only in my local area, but all over the country and hopefully all around the world. I think it's going to take a little time, but I think it's going to be worth it. Now, let me introduce you to our first guest, John Isaac. From 1969 to 1998, John Isaac worked for the United Nations and had a distinguished career in the Department of Public Information. In 1978, the United Nations promoted him to photographer, and he retired as the chief of the photo unit in 1998. During that time, John traveled to more than 100 countries while capturing on film some of the world's most dramatic moments, including wars in Bosnia and Rwanda. Those years of photographing some of the world's worst conflicts took a toll on John, as you'll hear, but it also led him on a new path as a nature and a landscape photographer. He's received numerous awards, including in 1993, Professional Photographer of the Year by the Photo Imaging Manufacturers and Distributors Association. As you'll hear, retirement has not slowed down this photographer, whose latest projects documenting the disputed region of Kashmir in South Asia promises to showcase some of John's best work today. So in a moment, our conversation with John Isaac. I'm here with John Isaac. Isaac, thank you for uh, being our first guest on the uh, Candid Frame podcast. Well, this is this is an honor for me, and I think uh, thank you for choosing me. Um, I wanted to start off um, in asking you because when you started, when you moved here from from India, you didn't have aspirations of becoming a, a photographer. Actually, you were considering becoming a, a folk singer, and I'm kind of wondering. How do you come from with aspirations of becoming a folk singer and 
becoming a, a photojournalist? Well, in 68, when I came here, like you said, I had a 12-string guitar, and, and I thought I'll become a star musician. And, and that's the time when you had all these um, uh, flower children, music scene was bursting in New York City. And one day when I was singing at the Greenwich Village, this lady heard me sing, and she said, <clears throat> I work for the United Nations, and we are actually looking for a baritone voice for our choral group. Would you like to come and audition, and I'll try and get you a job to work? And that's how I started my job at the UN. I got the part. I got a job as a messenger. And then a year and a half later, my brother sent me a camera because I told him that I wanted to try my you know, hands in photography. And then I won a major award. I won a Leica M5 as the first prize. And then the UN photo department said, why don't you come and work in our darkroom? So that's how I started my photography career, from music to photography. What started, you started, you're working in the lab at first, and then you started submitting your work in contest. And then I believe you won a, an award at Photokina in Cologne. And then soon after that, you were asked by the UN to cover the, I think, the Lebanon uh, Israeli conflict. And I'm wondering about that transition from working primarily in a lab to all of a sudden being thrust into documenting uh, a war. And, and in terms of how it was like for you to to make that transition, because when most people think about starting a photographic career, they're not really thinking about being thrown in the middle of, a, of an armed conflict. Yeah, and I think uh, even when I worked in the darkroom, I, I really enjoyed being a technical person for a few years, I did, and then I was getting awards recognition, and I was using a Minolta camera at that time, and I won the Photokina with that camera, and then I won a Nikon award later, in 77 and then 78 when I won the Fotokina, um, um, they, when I came back, my director said, uh, we want to try you out in the field. You've already been in the darkroom for several years. So, and that was my first, I didn't even know what I was supposed to do. So two days before I went through the photo library and I checked all the images that the other photographers had done at different parts where they were covering some conflict. And even my second or third day, uh, I was blindfolded to go and meet Arafat. You know, he was in the hiding at that time. And um, so I just winged my way into it. And here I am, you know, several years later, still doing the same thing. So it was a pretty scary start, but I think in some ways, it sort of opened my eyes about problems of the refugee and the, you know, conflict. And, and even today, for me, that's why they always label me as a photojournalist. But I personally think I'm a street photographer. That's the way I did all my war coverage, too, you know, not... <clears throat> in terms of the perspective that it gave you, in terms of the, the conflicts, oftentimes people like me are often reading the newspapers or seeing um, you know, television news coverage of the events. You have the opportunity to be there on a very personal level. And I was wondering what you were hoping to convey with, with your photographs. I know you were sort of, because you were working in the UN, 
you really couldn't take sides or, or show any bias in your photographs because you're representing all these different nations. But I was wondering, what were you hoping to achieve personally with your photographs? Um, I didn't have any grand ideas of, you know, what what is going to come out of it. But basically, right from the beginning, my thoughts were that I should be very truthful and not warp a story, but just to say what I'm saying, you know, not to take sides, like you said. It's In some ways, it's probably the most difficult way to do photojournalism or any journalism because you, you're right in the middle and you don't have any personal feelings for this side or that side because everyone is a member of the UN. So it was a difficult thing, but my um, thoughts right from the beginning was in some ways because people would see what is happening and I am there and I'm watching it and if I reported truthfully, maybe this would make an impact and things would change and this is what I was looking for and uh, th there were some times when I saw some changes in situations but then when I see the overall picture after 30 years it seems like nothing has changed so that's why sometimes I am sort of disillusioned about this whole process you know so it's a difficult thing so that's why later I had a lot of conflict within myself with my uh, psychological uh, position because I even went through a depression in 94 so that was the most difficult part and and sometimes I did see a change so my objective was basically to see a change whether they're starving children I was hoping that the year after they'll have food and they can have a home and and this was my objective it seems like on on certain occasions you actually made more of a personal impact in, in someone's life by not choo choosing to shoot them, to photograph them, and instead to help them. I think there were two stories uh, um, that come to mind. One of the girl who had been uh, assaulted uh, by a bunch of pirates and um, from, from, and I'm kind of interested in hearing about that personal choice because I know most photojournalists would not agree with that choice because they, they see their job is to document and not to interfere with what's happening around them. But you decided to make a, a choice that kind of contradicts that and I was wondering if you was going to speak to that. Yeah, that actually was my second assignment when I went to Southeast Asia to document the Vietnamese boat people and I saw this 13-year-old girl who had been raped and she lost her parents. She was, uh, you know, she had drifted to the shore and and I chose to find a, a place for her to, you know, I met some Catholic nuns and I, I wanted to do it because this was my first uh, urge that I had. I did not even point my camera uh, at her. So much later when I came back, even my editor and people said, how could you do that? I mean, you don't come back and tell us a story. You should have taken a picture. So this was a, a contradiction for me and I even called my mother who raised me in a certain way. So she said, no, John, I think you did the right thing. So looking back, I have no regrets because first of all, I think I'm a human being first and then only whatever I'm doing, whether I'm a photojournalist, photographer, that's all secondary. First and foremost for me, I'm a human being. So that has been ingrained since my childhood. So that's why it came out naturally for me to do something like that. 
and I really don't have any regrets because a lot of people criticize me. I remember we had a panel discussion after the boat people thing in the 80s, early 80s. Many of the people, editors, they said my way of doing photojournalism is not the right way, but maybe I was lucky I worked at the UN because they didn't push me to do things like, you know, a hardcore photojournalism. So sometimes um, it sort of helped me. You worked a lot with uh, UNICEF in conjunction with, with Audrey Hepburn. Um, and I was wondering, did you find that the work that you did as a result of UNICEF, um, did you feel like that had more of a, uh, a direct impact in, in, in making change? Because I know a lot of your images were used for, for posters and promotional and, and earned a good amount of money specifically for UNICEF. Did you find that in terms of an immediate return in your work, in terms of benefiting people, that you saw more of that happening in terms of your work with UNICEF as opposed to the general work you were doing with the UN? Yeah, in a way, it's true because I think um, one thing about UNICEF, because it deals with children, uh, humanity and societies uh, always focus on children. Children are like a prime target for things and also children propel us to go forward. I think even in a family situation, a lot of the parents, they work for their children. And so that's why covering children to me, um, I did for 20 years I did, and I think it was like a primary interest, and I also feel um, it really helped. And I think when Audrey Hepburn, when we went on her first assignment in 1988 to Ethiopia, she had seen the pictures that I had done earlier in 84. And I think when we came back, she raised over a million dollars on the first um, uh, trip that we came back with. I think children definitely play an important role and and uh, I also enjoyed working with UNICEF uh, much more than my regular uh, UN assignments, you know, which were like war and stuff like that. But even when I did that, basically somewhere it focused on mothers and children, you know. My story was always not about the frontline fighting, even though I I've been in Bosnia and places like that, but I chose to go to the hospitals and um, other refugee camps and talk about children and mothers who are affected by the war, you know. So I think it, in my opinion, I think it made a pretty good impact with 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 the general public, you know. You were doing that work for, for almost 20 years, and then you had um, one of your later assignments was in Rwanda, and that really impacted you. And at some point, you just took a break from work and and uh, didn't think you were going to pick up the camera again. But um, there's a story that you have about being in a friend's backyard and seeing a, a, a butterfly, and that somehow rejuvenated you and gave you a new um, opportunity to look at your work and, and yourself in a different way. Could I like to hear more about that? Yeah, I think uh, that was when I went through my depression, it was in 94, right after Bosnia, back to back, before coming back to New York, the UN asked me to go to Rwanda. And in Goma, they were in Zaire, like, you know, all these people were dying of cholera, the refugees. Then I went to Kigali and, you know, documented what was happening there. So I came back and my wife said every night I was screaming in my sleep. And so one day, 15 days or so later, I went to work, and uh, I had been 
uh, I didn't know what had happened. I just sort of had a blank, and I had this, you know, depression for a little bit. And then I was even contemplating to put an end to my life, you know. So I even made plans to go back to India or, you know, where I came from. And so one day when I when I went to work and I suddenly my co-workers, my staff, they one of them said, John, what's the matter with you? And then I just sort of broke down and I started to cry and I said, maybe you should take me to the medical service. And that was really tough. And then I went, I went through a whole process of healing. You know, I went to a psychiatrist, I spoke to him and I took some medication and then I packed all my cameras, like you said, and four months I was on leave and one day I saw in my neighbor's backyard the sunflower and then this beautiful butterfly came and sat on it. I don't know what happened. I just ran inside, loaded a roll of film and even my wife was surprised. What are you doing? You know, so I went out and I shot like 36 frames of this and that sort of immediately transferred me. And the next day I went back to work and I, it was amazing. So in some ways, I believe in the force and I believe in all of this because uh, it was such a thin line and I was like, um, uh, so, um, you know, I was like so uh, into like destroying myself and then just the beauty of what I saw brought me back and now I'm doing a lot of nature photography because of that, you know, so that's, that's a little story and I, I'd like to talk about it because a lot of my friends who worked with me at the UN told me, hey, you don't have to go tell your personal problems because people will think less of you. But on the contrary, it also had helped me to talk about it and get over it, as well as I've made a lot of new friends who call me or write to me and say, hey, I went through the same thing or my son went through it or my sister went through it. So in some ways, it has sort of given me um, a different kind of standing about these um, depression or uh, illness that we come across because we're all vulnerable to it because I thought the 20 years I worked I was much stronger than all of it I, I didn't even think about this so so I'm, I'm glad that I can share this with, with, with everybody Do you find that photographing you know, nature and wildlife has provided you um, an opportunity to express the beauty that you see in the world and basically you're having a, a much more um, more of an opportunity to show your personal view of the world than you had before when you were doing quote unquote photojournalism yeah I think so and I, I think that's why uh, even earlier when they labeled me as a photojournalist I was a people photographer and whenever I tried to show a landscape or a, I was always interested in tigers and I used to go to India you know, work on the, say, the Tiger Projects photograph, people would always say, oh, why don't you stick to your photojournalism? So in some ways, I wanted to also show people that uh, photography can transcend into uh, so many different ways. It doesn't have to be just one particular thing, you know. So that's why I don't want to be a specialist. I'd like to photograph whatever I find that interests me or... Um, uh, makes makes me get excited and I think nature has been doing some great things to me recently but then again I also want to tell you like uh, my last big assignment I did in between all my 
photographing the cranes in Bosque del Apache or the tigers in India or the puffins in Maine. I also undertook a, a, to do a book on Kashmir because it's a natural beauty of that land it sort of grabbed me when I saw it first in 2003. So two years I went like seven trips and it sort of combined my photojournalism and nature together. So I think this is probably my best work. You're a student of uh, Sufism, is that how, how you pronounce Suf, it? Sufism. Sufism, excuse me. And um, there was a thing I read about where you had learned the whole concept of uh, stop, look, and listen, and how that's impacted your photographs. Uh, I'm curious to see how exactly it's done that. I think it, uh, Sufism it takes from all other religions, and it's, it's more like a philosophy, and I think uh, stop look and listen is probably Zen and you know Sufis also do the same thing and they talk about the rhythm of life and the cycle of life and it when you look at it and apply it it helps you even in your photography if you're doing bird photography you follow the cycle of the bird just like us we have our cycle we get up we take a shower we have breakfast and they do the same thing they do their bath, they go to feed, they feed their children. So all of this falls in the same realm. And um, Sufism, the reason I like about Sufism is it's probably a philosophy which uh, teaches their believers or followers to suffer with other people who are suffering. And I think that's a very nice, noble way of looking at life instead of every, I have everything and I'm happy, but then here they they literally go and cry when they see a homeless person or they they go beyond and they try to help and that's one of the reasons that I, I thought this is I, I still think it's one of the best uh, philosophical ideology that uh, that and I read more about it now and all about Sufism is not to be self-important but just to be uh, helpful to other people one of the things I really enjoyed uh, learning from this, uh, I think one of the Sufi uh, prophet or uh, a poet who said, uh, may all your criticisms polish my mirror brightly. And I think that is such a brilliant statement, you know, because we are all in a learning process in this world. And I think when we stop learning, I think we have to take another journey, go on the other journey. But until then, when you have this attitude, of taking other people's criticism in a nice way, you're only going to improve. So I think um, I'm improving little at a time. So, and that's why it, the Sufi philosophy has also helped me in my photography in the recent days. It seems like that's an, an, uh, a concept or an attitude you've taken throughout your entire career and what you're describing. So I guess it's, it's allowed you to refine it a bit. Um, in looking at your work, I see an incredible level of in intimacy that exists there, which I think is a challenge for a lot of people who may be interested in doing, you know, people photography, particularly when traveling, but somehow they, they feel themselves sort of intimidated about, you know, approaching people and, and interacting with them and collaborating with them in, in a photograph. Um, I'm kind of curious as how do you, ex how do you, how do you personally uh, deal with that, particularly uh, with your recent work in, in Kashmir, you know, which is involved with all these sort of politics and, you know, and, and there were, of course, some safety concerns. But how did you navigate that in, in the two years that you were working on this project? 
I think the most important thing, and I feel, is that you should make people, when they look at you, they should trust you. And I think that is the most important thing. People ask me how many languages I speak. I speak my mother tongue, which is Tamil. Even rest of India doesn't speak that language. Hindi is our national language, and I speak English, you know, uh, of course, with an Indian accent. So, but wherever I go, uh, if if you smile and if you are humble or if you accept them and you uh, look into their eyes and you talk to them, I think people have trusted me so far. I I could only say in my entire career I may have had like two or three incidences where uh, people, you know, didn't like my presence or, you know, so they made it clear. So this is probably my forte in the sense, and I I encourage all of you to do the same thing. You can go into a strange place and not just walk in with all your cameras and, you know, flashing out there, but you, if you approach in a humble way and you talk to some people and then sometimes I, that's what I do, and I ask them, do you mind if I took some pictures and... 99% of the time, people have said yes. And even people ask me, how did you go to a strange place in, in the glaciers in Kashmir and how did you get these pictures of the families? I always tell them, like, after 10 minutes, the novelty wears off and they see you sitting there with your camera and I don't, you know, hurry up and do things. And I spend a few hours or maybe... Uh, a little more time and then slowly they relax and I tell them just go about doing what you're doing and I'll be doing my thing which will be photographing you so and and that's how it worked and and also smiling is so much easier than frowning and I think a lot of times if you are gentle and you smile at somebody they smile back and then uh, you know you you've got the whole world in front of you and also another thing I want to uh, emphasize to people who want to do people photography, you learn a lot from doing bird photography or nature, especially with birds. They don't wait for you or they don't listen to you. They just go about doing their thing. And so this way you understand their cycle and you're more observant and you try to catch it. And if you apply that to human beings, it's so much easier. You know, all you have to do is uh, get their trust and that's all you have to do and the rest is much more easier. Since you, you left the UN, um, you've been shooting digitally rather than film because most of your career at the, at, uh, the UN you had been using you know, the cameras and shooting film. But rather than, than talk to you about you know the actual capturing with digital cameras, considering your background as a printer, I'm curious to see how that background has impacted the production of prints, because from what I've read, you produce your own prints at home largely, and I'm wondering how you have found the technology in, you know, in completing the entire creative process towards that, that final print. Right. Um, first of all, when I quit the UN in 98, after 30 years of working with uh, film, I was a little bit uh, scared to get into digital because I didn't know anything about computers, and I was basically afraid of, you know, of whether I'll be able to do it or not, you know, you want to do it. So um, I was introduced to Olympus cameras and I saw that they uh, were retooling, they closed their uh, film division and they started to manufacture everything for digitally, including the lenses. So 
it really made sense to me and then and I was very impressed with the optics you know so for me it's not how many frames the camera could capture I wanted a good tool with absolutely sharp lenses and and this is what happened because when you're into printing as your final product I don't like to show my pictures on the you know computer and you know because that is not the real thing the real thing is uh, holding a print in your hand or looking at a print in an exhibition so what has happened to me now like I I know all the difficulties that that I will have when I have to print a certain situation so I start to think of my final product and then I do my uh, photography this way it really helps it it really makes me think about the range of the different shades that are going to be in the picture whether it can handle the highlight to the darkest area so this is how uh, I shoot now and so uh, so it's helped me and I, I was worried about making good prints and today I'm making like 20 by 24 uh, size prints with a 5 megapixel camera and also uh, I was a, a purist earlier, like, you know, making black and white prints and all of that. But today, with the Photoshop and with the technology, you can um, do all sorts of things. I'm not talking about manipulating the picture, but enhancing the picture to have great color. And you can go into one little isolated area. Uh, if it's the highlight has like a pink cast, I can uh, eliminate that and make it a better highlight so this you didn't have in conventional printing so I find all of this is helping me and I write in my house without mixing chemicals I can produce a very nice print that can be on an exhibition so it's um, it's been amazingly wonderful for me and it's made me uh, become another uh, again all over again a little kid and to learn all these new things because every week every day this new technology that's emerging and, and I'm trying to keep up with it. So it's, it's been a wonderful transition for me. You took um, some courses with George Tice and, and Ansel Adams at one point in your career, but I'm wondering um, who are the photographers that you really admired in the past or, or currently? I think Cartier uh, uh, Bresson is like my all-time favorite photojournalist, you know, at the the moment that he captured in and that's sort of uh, like he's like my ultimate hero but I also like Ansel Adams work for his perfection and also I like a lot of photographers today and I don't particularly say that I have a favorite but I like to go to different museums galleries and also photo magazines like your magazine that you write you know as well as so many other magazines I uh, thumb through and I look at portfolios and other people's work because it's not that I want to, I appreciate a lot of work and there are some very nice young photographers today who are doing some amazing work and, and all of this is only making me a better photographer so um, I'm enjoying all of this. You have a new book coming out soon uh, based on your work in Kashmir, uh, tell us about that. Uh, I think uh, Norton is going to publish this and um, this is the last three years or two and a half years I did like uh, uh, seven trips to Kashmir and actually next week 
I'm going to India to Singapore for an exhibition and then I'll probably spend a day or two back in Srinagar again to take a few more pictures and if it's um, the snow is falling then I'd like to get some really nice snow pictures but this book came about in the last three years and now I'm I, one of the things I want to uh, I feel personally is that uh, all the mistakes I made in the 30 years of my photojournalism photography I kept a pretty careful record of uh, a lot of the mistakes and so when I started this project with Kashmir I started to read these mistakes and and I was uh, you know conscientiously um, uh, wanted to improve my photography so what what was funny was that I saw all the different images that I'd seen before and I missed the uh, the good shot and this time I think I was able to uh, do it better because of uh, maybe it's a technical thing that I did or it's the way I saw it, the way I composed. So I think this is probably my best work uh, because it, it culminates uh, all my mistakes and to a certain extent I try to correct it. And I'm very happy with this. So what's next for you? Do you have a, a project in mind or a particular part of the world that you're interested in traveling in? I think the next thing I'd like to do is that in the 38 years that I've lived in this country, I haven't seen much of America, so I would really like to take the back roads and go visit small towns and, you know, take certain routes and and um, be with the local population and talk to them and write a series of articles. And that's, it's not for a book project or anything, but I just like to do it to understand the people who live in this country and and in some ways I'm ashamed that in the 30 years or 38 years I've been to over 100 countries but I haven't seen much of America so that's my my immediate future goal. Well considering what we've done I think it should be a really interesting take on on, on this country. Well thanks a lot John for, uh, for taking the time to do the interview we really appreciate it. And thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to be here and talk to you uh, freely about my life. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. We welcome your comments and suggestions. You can visit us at www.thecandidframe.com or email us at thecandidframe at gmail.com. Thanks again, and until next time, this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.